Let me ask this question. What defines your life? What is the supreme passion, the desire and goal of all that you are? What is it that drives you? Or maybe another way to ask the question is, what is it that people will remember long after you're gone? What will be the epitaph on the gravestone above your head? That, that one thing that defines you, the one thing that people will remember about you. I want us this morning to think about that question and think about what would be written on that headstone. You know, many people have lived for many different causes and many different purposes, and some of them are literally emblazoned on their headstone. Here's a few examples. Mel Blanc, who was the creator of Looney Tunes and the voice of many of the Looney Tunes, was so known for that that even on his headstone it says, very predictably, that's all, folks. <laughs> Merv Griffin, who was a TV producer and television show host, and actually the creator of Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy and many others, has on his headstone written, I will not be back after this message. <laughs> Floyd Patterson, who was an Olympic gold medal winner, a heavyweight boxer, two-time world champion, has on his headstone, a champion always. Finally, Michael Leroy Luther, who was a video game enthusiast, his favorite was Pac-Man, has his headstone actually designed like a Pac-Man machine, and on the front of it it says, game over. And all of these reflect what these men were known for. What was it that defined their lives? Was it Looney Tunes? Was it television? Was it boxing? What is it that would be written over top of your life? I think if we could discover the tomb of the Apostle Paul, we might find written over his headstone, if you will, the words of Philippians chapter 1. Because what we see here is a glimpse of what drove Paul, the, the thing that so defined his life. Look at verses 20 and 21 of Philippians 1. It says there, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There's Paul's consuming passion, his lifelong passion, to magnify Christ in life and death, no matter what happened. No matter what circumstances arrived in his life, it was all about bringing glory and honor to the Lord Jesus. There's his famous words, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That is the outworking of his lifelong, total passion of his life. This chapter of Philippians 1 gives us a biblical view of life and death. And it's very different than what we might expect it's a complete 180 of the way we naturally think. You know, when we talk about death, we talk about it in terms of loss. You know, we talk about, well, we've lost a loved one. I'm sorry for your loss. But here it says death is gain for the believer. Complete 180 of what we would normally think. For most people, life is the ultimate pursuit and death the ultimate loss. But it's the exact opposite for the Apostle Paul. How can he have this unique view of life and death? I think it flows out of his singular passion to magnify Christ. If I could say it like this. When we live with the purpose to magnify Christ, life and death are in proper perspective. 
When we live for the purpose to magnify Christ, life and death are in proper perspective. If your lifelong passion is to magnify Christ, everything in life will align with that one <coughs> main goal. And I think this is what Paul has been hinting at already. In fact, as we previously studied verses 12 through 18, Paul puts the gospel first. And because of that, it changes the way he looks at life. His, his imprisonment and his chains are not an inconvenience, but an actual advance of the gospel. The preaching of his rivals is not a headache and a, a heartache to him. It's actually good news because the gospel is going forward. So he has a very different view because he puts the gospel first, because his goal is to magnify Christ. And that extends to what he views of life and death itself. Paul gives us a unique perspective here. I want to read together verses 19 to 26 again, just to get the whole picture of this passage. Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life, or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may come, may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So here we see this truth. When we live for the purpose to magnify Christ, life and death are in proper perspective. There are two, actually three, perspectives that I want us to see in this passage. Necessary perspectives we need to have. Number one, we need to have a singular perspective of everything. A singular perspective of everything. This is Paul's passion. This is what he lived for. There was one thing. Not one, not two, not three, four. But one thing that he lives for. To magnify the Lord Jesus. We see this in verses 19 and 20. And actually, technically, our passage begins in verse 18. Because the thought of rejoicing, he says, and yes, I will rejoice. Why, Paul? Why are you going to rejoice? And he explains verse 19. Four. So really, our passage begins in verse 18. I rejoice. Why, Paul? Why do you rejoice? Because this is going to turn out for my deliverance. So we see first Paul's confidence. His confidence on display for us. In the previous section, verses 19 to, or excuse me, 12 to 18, Paul's talking about his current condition. He's in prison. He's in chains. But that's worked out for the advance of the gospel. Here's the question that the Philippians are wondering. Where are these chains headed, Paul? What's, what's going to be the result of all this? Where is all this going to end up? Well, Paul was at that time in prison waiting to, to be presented before Caesar. Remember, he had appealed to Caesar. So his case was coming up. And when he appeared, there would be one of two results to that case. Either he would be acquitted and released, or he would be found guilty and executed. Those were the two options. That was what Paul was waiting to hear, the judgment of this case. Which would it be? 
Well, Paul didn't know. Both were possibilities. Maybe he would be released. Maybe he would be executed. But it seems to me that Paul has a confidence. A confidence, I think, in both of those scenarios. Uh, look at verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Well, Paul, how do you know that? How do you know this is all going to work out? Well, he seems to have a confidence here. And his confidence, as we're going to see, is built upon the, the Spirit of God and the prayers of the saints. So it's a, a profound confidence. But I think the key is found in the word deliverance here. It's actually the word that typically translated salvation. So this is going to work out for my salvation. Now, salvation can talk about a spiritual thing, right? We are saved by grace through Christ. But it can also talk about natural deliverance in life. Uh, like we might say, somebody, I was saved from a burning building. Well, you were spared from the flames. Well, I think Paul kind of uses this word as a way of saying both. It has a near reference and a far reference. He says, this is going to work out for my deliverance. In other words, if, if the case is acquitted and I am freed, then I will have been delivered in the near term. But even if Caesar chooses to execute me, I'll be delivered from this life into heaven. So either way, I can expect and have confidence that this is going to work out for my deliverance. Whether it's deliverance in this life or deliverance through death, either way, I have this confidence that this is going to work out for my salvation, for my deliverance. What is this confidence grounded in, though? Well, it's grounded in two thoughts here. First, the prayers of the saints. Since I know this will turn out for my deliverance, through your prayers. So the Philippians were praying for Paul, probably primarily for his release. I think, I think Paul's expectation is that he will be released. Why do I think that? Well, number one, Paul knows he's innocent. He's not done anything wrong. So the natural assumption would be, when all the evidence is clear out in the open, everyone's going to see I'm innocent. Secondly, he knows that the Philippians are praying for him. And prayer matters. In fact, look down, if you will, in verses 24 to 26. Paul says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful to you. Being confident of this, there's that confidence again. I know that I shall remain, that is, remain here on earth, and continue with you all for your progress of joy and faith, and verse 26, your rejoicing in me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus by my coming to you again. So Paul sees both options. I may live, I may die. But it seems to me that his thought is, I'm probably going to live. And part of that is this prayer of the saints. The Philippians were praying for his release, but also for his strength in imprisonment. Now there's a bottomless mystery that comes to us when we talk about prayer, isn't there? Uh, I, I cannot explain how prayer works entirely. I have not in this life, certainly. That God is sovereign, God is powerful, He's going to do what God is going to do, and yet, the Bible talks about our prayers being effective, that our prayers make a difference. And how, do all, how does all that work together with, with God's plans and our prayers and and Certainly, it's an interesting topic to explore, but one that we'll never plumb the bottom of. But the prayers of God's people make a difference. They matter. 
And the prayers for, for Paul was that he would be released, that he would be delivered from this current affliction. Paul has confidence because people are praying for him. Second, though, his confidence is undergirded by this provision of the Spirit. You notice he says this in verse 19, the supply of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, or of Jesus Christ. The supply of the Spirit. Now, some versions might say the help of the Spirit. But really, the word has the idea of supply, of provision. You might say, well, why does Paul need provision of the Spirit? Doesn't he already have the Spirit of God? Doesn't the, the Spirit indwell every believer? That's true. And yet, in some sense, Paul is looking for a renewed supply, if you will, of, of help, of power, of encouragement from the Spirit. I think this is very parallel to what you see in Acts chapter 4. In that passage, Paul and John are arrested and, and warned, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They go back to the church, and what happens? The church prays, and the building is shaken. The Holy Spirit is poured out on them to speak with all boldness. It was almost like a, a fresh uh, empowerment of the Spirit in that case. Again, what do we see here? Prayer and supply of the Spirit. It's the same two elements. I think that's what he's saying, is that here in my imprisonment, you keep praying, and the Lord give me strength. Give me his spirit in measure to be able to stand in this difficult trial. Where's all this headed, though? Verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. I think 20 has in mind his trial, because he talks about not being ashamed and standing with boldness. Those are two things he wants on that day when he stands, not, not before God, although certainly he wants both of those qualities in the final judgment, but when he stands before Caesar. And he gives an account. And, and he's called to testify about Jesus. He needs to be not ashamed and to act with boldness. And, and what's going to help him do that? The prayers of the saints, the provision of the Spirit. We see Paul's confidence here. But I want to also notice his commitment. His commitment. We see this at the end of verse 20. And this is where we get to the singular perspective of everything. Paul had this as his goal, as his life's endeavor. That in everything, always so now, also Christ be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. In other words, the one thing that matters, the one thing I'm all about is that Jesus would be magnified through me. Now, what exactly does that mean? What is this commitment that he's making? It's a commitment to glorify God in everything. He says it a different way in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, the whole scope of life, do all to the glory of God. Your life is for one purpose, the singular perspective of glorifying God in everything you do at all times. And you notice that was his always uh, position, wasn't it? Verse 20, he says, so all, always, so also now. In other words, I, need, I want this to be my goal right now, but this is what I, this has always been my goal. This is what Paul's posture was, was to always be a person who magnified Christ in everything. Now, what does it mean to magnify Christ, though? What does it mean? How do we practically glorify him? Well, there's an interesting word used, magnify here. And that's actually a pretty good translation of the Greek word megaluna. Which, as you can hear in that Greek word, 
has the prefix mega on it. And literally it means to make something large. To make something large. So how do we make Christ large? I mean, certainly there's nothing we can do that adds anything to Jesus. So what does it mean? Well, the word is used a handful of times in the New Testament. And it might be helpful to look at these. Matthew 23, verse 5, uses the same word, megaluna, to make large. There it's used in a negative sense. It says that the Pharisees enlarged the tassels of their robe so that people would see them and think that they're more spiritual. They, they made those larger. In other words, they wanted people to see how spiritual they were, so they, they literally, in that case, made things larger so that people would see them. So already we're having an idea here that this word talks about people looking on and seeing something and taking notice. Acts 5.13 uses this of the seven men. There were seven men chosen as servants for the church, Stephen and six others. And the Bible says in Acts 5.13 that these men were held in high esteem among the church. Same word. They, they looked up to these men. They, they saw in them real character. Finally, though, Acts 19, verse 17 also uses this word. The people magnified Christ when they saw the great miracles that the apostles did. They saw Jesus as bigger than they did before. So it's not a matter of making Jesus bigger, but rather of us showing him for what he really is. Think of this word magnify in terms of a telescope. When you take a telescope and look into the night sky, you don't make anything bigger. The stars and the planets are all pretty large as they are. You're not doing anything to them. But you're able to see them more clearly and with greater detail than you did before. I remember when I was growing up, Dr. Faulkner was a member of our church and he was an astronomer and physicist with the University of South Carolina at the time. And he had access to an observatory with one of the largest telescopes in the state of South Carolina. So on a couple of occasions, he took me and my brothers out there, and uh, we spent the night looking at different sights in the night sky, focused in on Jupiter and the moon and various other things. And this was, I think it was a 16-inch telescope or something like that. So this was a big instrument. And it's just amazing to be able to see with clarity. You know, we were looking through this little hole millions and millions, billions perhaps of miles from these objects. And there they are, in full color detail in front of your eyes. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the first astronomers who looked through a telescope at some of those, and just how blown away they were by the planets? Well, that's what we do when we magnify Christ. We make him, we show him with greater detail and clarity to the world. By magnifying Christ, by showing Him through our lives, by living for Him, people see Christ more clearly, more plainly. It's this singular perspective. Everything. You notice this in verse 20. Magnify in my body, whether life or in death. It didn't matter what happened to Paul, so long as Jesus was magnified. This is Paul's echo of John the Baptist, who said, I must decrease, he must increase. Jesus must be seen, worshipped, glorified. And we live for a singular purpose, and that purpose is to glorify Christ in all things. It changes the way we look at everything. 
changes the way we think about family. It changes the way we think about our job. It changes the way we think about our community. It changes the way we think about everything in life. Paul had the singular purpose, singular perspective, that his, his mission, his goal, was to glorify Christ in everything. I also want us to notice a service perspective of life. This is what flows out of that singular perspective of everything. Remember, when we have the, the purpose to magnify Christ, it changes our perspective on life and death. And here's the perspective we get. A service perspective on life. This life is to be used to serve the Lord. And this is where we get to verse 21. It says, therefore, to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. You notice the word for at the beginning. He's continuing the thought. His purpose is to magnify Christ. What does that mean? How is that going to be worked out? He says, well, for me, it means Christ is my life and death is gain. Now, those words are very familiar to us. In fact, it's a very brief statement. In, in Greek, it's only six words. Literally, it reads, for me, Christ. To die, gain. So, to live, Christ, to die, gain. It's just that short. And because of that, it's, it's become a very quotable verse. You can find this on a t-shirt. You can get this on a mug. You can get it on a plaque for your wall. You, know, you can write it uh, in a journal. All those are great things. But sometimes I think it becomes sort of a slogan. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But I wonder if we really stop and ask people and say, well, what do you mean to live as Christ? What does that exactly mean for you? I think a lot of people would probably be, have a hard time giving an answer for that. Well, what does it mean to live as Christ? Well, you know, they might try an answer, but what does it really mean? Paul says very similar things in other places in the New Testament. For instance, in Colossians 3, he says, Christ, who is your life? Maybe the closest parallel, though, is in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You hear kind of the echo. echo. To live is Christ. It means Christ living in us, indwelling us. But I think it has the idea of Christ being all to us. If we're going to say, for me to live is Christ, it means... Christ means everything to us. One Scottish preacher and biblical scholar named John Eady, several centuries ago, wrote, For me to live is Christ. The preaching of Christ, the business of my life. The presence of Christ, the cheer of my life. The image of Christ, the crown of my life. The spirit of Christ, the life of my life. The love of Christ, the power of my life. The will of Christ, the law of my life. The glory of Christ, the end of my life. In other words, the person who lives, for, for the person like Paul, who for them to live is Christ, their whole world revolves around Jesus. That everything, his, his life's work was to make Jesus known. His life's goal was to glorify Christ in all that he did and said. So everything revolved around this one idea. <clears throat> Live is Christ. Centered upon him in every way. And yet, so often people would substitute something else, right? For me to live is what? 
fill in a lot of things. For me to live is family. For me to live is career. For me to live is success. For me to live is money. For me to live is entertainment. For me to live is whatever. And I don't think anybody would express it that way, but that's exactly how they live. What becomes the most important thing? Is it the weekend on the lake? Or is it being in church and worshiping the Lord? Is it making money? Or is it winning that co-worker to Christ? What becomes the main goal? See, if you have that singular perspective on everything, it's going to give you a service perspective on life. We need to have Christ as the center. What is, what's your life about? Is it about those other things or is it about Christ? What do you live for? In 1799, a very famous British sculptor named John Bacon died. In his will, he ordered that these words be printed on his tombstone. Remember, we talked about tombstones. Here's what it said. When I was an artist, it seemed to me the most important thing while I lived. But what I really was as a believer in Christ is the only thing of importance to me now. In other words, life, art was, is all. He says, now, all that matters is Christ. He obviously learned that before he died. Or else he wouldn't have put that on his tombstone. Made to live is Christ. It means service. So, so really, practically, what does it mean? Okay, you say, this is great, great. Christ is sitting in my life. But what is that really? How does that play out, practically speaking? Well, it's, essentially, it means a service perspective on life. If Christ is all, then our lives should be spent serving him, right? I don't mean vocationally, necessarily. It's not celebrating you have to become a missionary somewhere, per se. But life is about service. Serving the Lord. This is what follows in verses 22 to 26. is a wrestling match that Paul has. He is torn between two things. Living and dying. Seems like an odd thing to be stuck between. Seems like an obvious choice, right? Unless you have a death wish, why would you want to die, Paul? That, that's part of this renewed perspective he has. Imagine verses 22 to 26 like this. Paul pulls out a piece, a sheet of paper, and he draws a line down the middle. He makes a ledger on both sides. And on top of one, it says life. On the top of the other, he says death. And he starts listing off. Well, here's all the reasons I have to live. Here's all the reasons I have and, and the, the blessings I would receive in death, being a believer. And, and he's kind of torn between the two. Well, you know, it looks like two really good options. But notice what he highlights when it comes to life. The reason and the benefit of living is that he can continue to serve. First of all, we see what, what, is, what does it look like for a person with a single, singular purpose to glorify God. Well, it means producing fruit. Producing fruit. Look at verse 22. For if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. You notice those words? What can I choose? I can't tell. I, I, I don't know. These are two excellent options. But he says for me to live, it means producing fruit. Fruitful service. Labor. In other words, if I live, I can go on serving Christ, I can go on starting churches, I can go on preaching the gospel, I can go on training leaders. He was interested in producing fruit. It wasn't that if I, if I go on living, I can take that vacation and I can finally, you know, work towards retirement and I can finally pay off that loan. No, he says, for me to live is fruitful labor. We have this idea of retirement 
There is no retirement from Christian service. There's no retirement from serving the Lord. That was Paul's idea, at least. He says, I want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ to the last breath, producing fruit. He also notices that it's more needful for the Philippians for him to stay. It's not only is he producing fruit, it's also profiting others. <coughs> A life continues to profit others. Go down to verse 14. Nevertheless, it's re to remain in the flesh is more needful to you. In other words, Philippians, it would be better for you if I stayed rather than departed. Why? Well, he says, and being confident of this, I know that, you shall, that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy of faith. That is growth in, in the Lord, progress in spiritual things, growing in joy and faith. Paul has an expectation that he is going to be free. By the way, just for your information, he writes about this elsewhere. The little New Testament letter of Philemon was written during the same imprisonment. And at one point in the letter, Paul writes to Philemon and says, prepare a guest room for when I come to you. So it seems like he had a lot of confidence that he was going to come out of prison. So he was producing fruit, profiting others, but also he expected to have a personal ministry among them. Look at the end of verse 26. It says, Your rejoicing in me may be more abundant in Christ Jesus for by my coming to you again. See, this is for, for Paul, this is life. It means producing fruit, profiting others, and personal ministry to others. You notice what that all has in common? Service. For Paul, to live is to continue to serve God with a few more days, with a few more weeks. That's the perspective you get. If your life is about glorifying Christ, if, you're, if you say, yes, I want to magnify Christ with my life, whether by life or death, that means you serve him with the time you have. It's a service perspective on life. Finally, though, we see a satisfied perspective of death. A satisfied perspective of death. A hopeful one. Death for Paul is not something to be shuddered at in fear and terror. It's something he is, in a sense, looking forward to. Not because he has some kind of morbid wish. He has a transformed perspective. Death, however, is one of those things that we often avoid talking about. People don't like to talk about death. It's sort of taboo subject because it is something that is alarming to people. People don't want to think about death. Even though we all know it's coming. As, as one elderly gentleman expressed it, I'm sick of living, but I'm terrified of dying. Well, to the believer, death is not fearful or terrifying. It's the hope of seeing the Savior face to face. Look at verse 21 again. For me to live is Christ talked about that. To die is gain. Dying is gain. That is so counterintuitive. No, dying, dying is lost. I want you to notice a couple things, though. Dying is only gain to those who live for Christ. If, if someone is apart from Christ, death is a terrifying thing. It means Separation from the Lord, it means separation into the fires of hell. So, yes, terrifying. But for those who are in Christ, who know him, who love him, who are loved by him, death is not terrifying. So, to, for those who live, those for whom living is Christ, 
Dying is a blessing. It's a gain. But I want to also point out why heaven is gain. Why is heaven gain to the believer? Well, I think you might get a lot of answers for that one. Some people might answer, well, heaven is gain because my loved ones are there. Heaven is gain because there are streets of gold and there's a mansion prepared for me. That's true. Heaven is gain because all my pain and suffering will finally be gone. That's also true. Heaven will be gained because I can finally rest from all my labor. Those things are all true. But is that why heaven is gained? Paul doesn't mention any of those things here. He doesn't mention mansions or, or streets of gold. He doesn't mention rest or end of tears. What he does mention is Christ. That's what makes heaven gain. When we love Christ and he is our life, what, is, what does heaven mean? It means we get to be with Christ. Somebody once paraphrased verse 21. For me to live is Christ, for me to die is more Christ. That's the idea here. Is that what makes heaven so glorious, what makes it something that Paul looks forward to, his Savior is there. And that is what makes heaven desirable. That's what makes it gain. Going down though from verse 21, again we have that wrestling match. Would Paul choose to live or would he choose to die, given what he knows, given this perspective? He says, I can't really choose. In fact, look at verse 22. Uh, he says, I cannot tell. Verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two. In other words, I have these two options, and I essentially what he's saying is I'm between a rock and a hard place, except for both choices are good. Both choices are good. To live and keep serving or to die and be with Christ. Which one? Again, Paul has a satisfied perspective of death that makes that choice difficult. He's hard-pressed. Paul, however, does let us know what his desire is. Verse 22. Excuse me, verse 23. I'm hard-pressed between two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. I want us to point out just three elements here of what we learn about death for a believer. First of all, for a believer, death is a release. Death is a release. We see this in verse 23. A desire to depart and be with Christ. That word depart is a great, great term. Because again, death, I'll admit, death is a scary reality, right? It is something that, even though we may have confidence in the fact that we know Christ and we know where to be with him, still the, the fact of dying sounds pretty scary. So I think this is helpful to just highlight this. He uses this word depart. It really means to, to loosen and set free. <clears throat> loosen and set free. Unloosing for departure is really the idea. And you can picture this. A boat is tied up to the dock. You unloose the rope so the ship can sail, so the boat can glide across those waters. So the, the picture that Paul paints, it says, I'm going to depart and be with Christ. It's almost like I'm going to climb the boat, we're going to loose from this life, and I'm going to sail into eternity. And to me, that's kind of a comforting picture. That, yeah, that can be scary, and dying can be scary. But for the believer, it's a release. We're, we're letting go of this life and stepping into the presence of Jesus. And I will be honest, I don't know what the year holds, I don't know what's going to happen, but there may be some, even here, who face death within the next year or two. Certainly I wouldn't desire that, but... 
I want you to have a, a sure hope and confidence that if you're a believer in Christ, death is just letting go of this world and stepping into eternity with Jesus. And that's a comforting thing. Death is a release. Secondly, for the believer, death is a reunion. Look at verse 23 again. It says, for I desire to depart and be with Christ. And be with Christ, that's a reunion. Again, he doesn't mention his relatives or his loved ones who are there. He mentions Jesus. A reunion with a friend that he, in this life, well, we don't think that Paul ever met Jesus. There's no record of him meeting Jesus in the flesh besides his Damascus Road vision. But for us, none of us have met Jesus, not face to face. And yet the Bible says in 1 Peter, even though we have not seen him, yet we love him. Jesus is a friend, a close companion. And so when we get to heaven, it's going to be a reunion. Though we've never seen him, we will know immediately, and, and we will immediately feel that we are in the presence of our dearest, closest friend. It's going to be a reunion for the believer. That's what Paul's looking forward to, a reunion with Christ. What could be better than that? Finally, it's a reward. For the believer, it's also a reward. Look at the end of verse 23. It says, I desire to depart be with Christ, which is far better. Far better. Isn't that true? That to be in heaven would be far better than life here. Being with Jesus face to face. Better by far. Actually, the way this is written, you could translate it, and this is the literal translation for the end of verse 23. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is much more better. That's not very good English, but it's pretty good theology. It is much more better. Better than we could possibly imagine. I think a lot of people trick themselves into thinking this life is much more better. And that death is a loss, right? Because we, we're losing everything that we've amassed in this life. But Paul says it's gain. Because what awaits us is far greater than what is here. Don't be deceived. Point is, Paul has a very different perspective, doesn't he? He lives for a single purpose, to magnify Christ and everything. And because of that, life is for service and death is gain. Very different way of looking at things. The question we have to ask ourselves again is, what are we living for? Are we living for that singular purpose, to magnify Christ in everything? Before we close this, this morning, I want to take us back to the graveyard one more time. We started by looking at some headstones. I want us to end that way as well. This time, though, we're going to have to go to the Anhui province in eastern China. There, buried next to one another, are John and Betty Stam, American missionaries to China. They represent a good picture of what it's like for someone to magnify Christ, no matter the cost, and to glorify him in everything. John and Betty Stam, both graduates of Moody Bible Institute, had a, had a desire to go serve the Lord in China. Betty graduated slightly before John. She went on ahead to China. He finished up at Moody, and they both joined the China Inland Mission, the mission organization found by J. Hudson Taylor. This was 1931. Well, John Stam followed Betty to China in 1932, and the two of them were reunited, and they were wed in China. 
Several years later, in 1934, their daughter Helen was born. Several months after she was born, they were living in a, a town in eastern China, and a group of communist revolutionaries came through. Creating havoc, they kidnapped these foreigners, John and Betty and their daughter. They held them for ransom. But they knew that this could very well be the end of their lives. John Stam wrote a letter, actually a telegram, back to the office of the China Inland Mission. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read the, the majority of it. He writes, Dear brethren, my wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists in the city of Tsingte. They demand $20,000 for our release. All our possessions and stores are in their hands, but we praise God for peace in our hearts and a meal tonight. God grant you wisdom in what to do, and us fortitude, courage, and peace of heart. He is able, and a wonderful friend in such a time. And then he closes the letter with these words. The Lord bless and guide you, and as for us, may God be glorified, whether by life or by death. The next day, John and Betty Stan were taken by these communist revolutionaries, marched to the nearby town. They beheaded John Stan first and then beheaded Betty. Their daughter Helen was left behind, was actually picked up by a Chinese pastor and eventually was brought to Betty's parents who lived in China. So she survived the whole ordeal. But John and Betty Stan were buried in China, not far from where they were executed. And on his headstone are written his last words and the words of Philippians 1.20. For Christ be magnified in my life, whether by life or death. Right next to him is Betty's fam. And on her headstone it reads, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Would those be the words that they would write above you? Whether you give your life as a martyr like they did, or whether you serve him till your last breath. I hope 